0: You can open your Bibles today, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. All of you have heard the saying, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If you've ever been called as a witness in court, or if you like to watch courtroom dramas on TV, if you are a an old Perry Mason fan, and probably most of you young people have no idea who Perry Mason is, But uh, you've probably heard that question asked just before testimony. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And at first that statement seems to be a redundancy. Why, Why would you emphasize truth and whole truth and nothing but the truth? Well, it is possible to tell the truth and yet not tell the whole truth. You might actually leave something out. And then it's possible for you to think that you're telling the whole truth, and yet you may add something that's not certainly known, that it may be conjecture, and you think that that is truth. Well, in this section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing with the problem of the whole truth. The religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, told things that were true... But they had things mixed up, and they really stopped short of teaching the whole truth. And the part that they left out was really the most critical. Its omission is what conflicted with Scripture, and thus it conflicted with the teachings of Christ. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to use six statements as demonstration that the Pharisees did not teach the whole truth. Their standard of righteousness was built on something that was lowered. It was less than the whole truth. And so that prompted Jesus to say, "...unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven." And we face the same problem today. You you may find that the truth is expressed in external commands. But the whole truth is that while the external is important... It's the attitude of the heart that's really the most critical. Actions arise from the heart. And unless your heart is right, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, so Jesus then begins in verse number 21 to show us his first example of how the Pharisees stopped short of teaching the whole truth. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. We pray, Lord, you'd speak to us through the message and help us to learn the truth, the whole truth, of what Jesus is teaching in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Verse number 20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed exceed, The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. From this point on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving an explanation of that statement. Jesus was committed to the whole truth. He stood upon the scriptures because he was the authority who was behind the scriptures. And what he's about to do here is to set the record straight. The Word of God had been taught incorrectly. The scribes and the Pharisees had distorted. And with what they taught, they were in direct conflict with Moses and the prophets. Jesus said in verse number 17 that he had not come to destroy Moses and the prophets. And what he meant was that he came to give us a correct interpretation of the law. There is a spirit to the law. The law is not bound up in the letter only But the law actually goes much deeper, deeper than external commands. The law of God goes straight to the heart. So now Jesus begins with his first example, and his first example is the sin of murder. He says, "...ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment." I want to remind you again that what Jesus says is not in conflict with Moses. He's not adding something to the law of Moses. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. That does not refer to what Moses said. It refers to what the Pharisees had so long been teaching. They were concerned about the letter of the law. And the simple statement that's made there is absolutely correct. Thou shalt not kill That's the sixth commandment, and it's found in the law of Moses. So that's a true statement, to say that those who murder, that those who kill others shall be in danger of judgment. Now let's talk about that true statement for just a moment, that part of it. First we want to look at the crime of murder. Now what the Pharisees had done, they had taken this sixth commandment that God gave in the Ten Commandments, and they combined it, with Numbers 35, verse number 30, and this was their whole teaching concerning murder. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. And so the judgment against murder is that the person who murders is to be brought before a court of law. He is a guilty murderer, and if he's guilty of that, he should be put to death. Now, it's not my purpose today to speak about capital punishment, But capital punishment is a biblical teaching. That is an imperative. It's God's law, and God's law says that murderers are to be punished by having their lives taken from them. Now, we have the idea that by outlawing capital punishments that somehow we're living by some kind of a higher moral standard. But it's not a higher moral standard. In fact, it lowers God's standard, and it's a sin because that breaks God's law as surely as a murderer breaks God's law. Now the Pharisees were teaching the truth when they said murder is a crime and murder is to be punishable by death. Where does the sin of murder come from? Well, it's authored by Satan. In John eight forty four, Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now the beginning goes back a long, long way. Murder began with Satan. And it was the temptation of Satan in the Garden of Eden that introduced sin into God's creation. Adam was tempted by Satan. And when he entered into that temptation, sin slew the human heart. And then after that, Adam was cast out of the Garden. And it wasn't long before murder affected the first human family. Cain rose up and he killed his brother Abel. So that before the very first generation of humanity had passed, there was already a murder, and the cause of that murder was the wickedness of the human heart. Now the heart is deceitfully wicked, and so Jesus says in Matthew 15:19, "For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies." Now that tells us then that murder is not a product of the environment. Murder is not because some people have been raised in poverty. It's not because there are those who lack education. Murder comes from the wickedness of the human heart. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when man's heart became devoted to evil. There's no goodness in it. There's no soundness in it. The human heart holds all the potential for the most heinous crimes that are possible. And that's why when you read in the newspaper, you'll read of some of the worst crimes, the worst murders that have been committed. Just a few years ago, our newspapers were dominated by this story about Scott Peterson who killed his pregnant wife. And what did he do? He killed her. He dismembered her body. She was eight months pregnant, threw her into the San Francisco Bay. A while later, the fetus washed up on the shore and then the torso of her body was found. In the late, 17, uh, late 70s and 80s, rather, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 people. And before killing them, he raped them, he tortured them, he cut off their body parts, and then after they were dead, he resorted to cannibalism. Now those are some of the most gruesome crimes that we can think of, and they come from the depths of depravity of the human heart. Now, I want you to remember that because that's going to be important when we get to Jesus' teachings concerning murder. So murder is authored by Satan. It's a terrible sin, and so thus it is an abomination to God. Man was created in the image of God, and so to take a person's life is to destroy that image. I'm not saying, of course, that murder is equal to killing God, but whatever is created in God's image is sacred. Human life is sacred to God. Not because of who we are, but because of what God has made. And so we find that in the list of sins, the categories of sins that are given in the Scriptures, murder is put there with the very worst. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, "...these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood." A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. And you might do well to look at that list and see the types of things that have been categorized with murder. There are seven things there that the Scripture says are an abomination to God. And you can take a look at Romans 1, verse 29, Galatians 5, verse 21, Revelation twenty two fourteen, 14, and you'll see there that the Word of God says that the kingdom of God is not a place for murderers. Now, every one of us ought to let, that, let those scriptures ring in our ears when we contemplate that there are over 17,000 murders that are committed in the United States every year. There are over 1.5 million abortions, That are performed in the United States. Man murders. He destroys the image of God at an alarming rate. And friends, that is an abomination to God. And so the Pharisees were teaching rightly. They said, Thou shalt not kill. And they said, Whoever does, you'll be in danger of the judgment. And that was the truth. That's what's written in God's Word. But unfortunately, it's not the whole truth, it is the truth. But it's not the whole truth. And so Jesus is going to set the record straight. Now secondly, I'd like us to look at the conviction of malice. The teaching of the Pharisees was that if you refrain from this external act of murder, then you've kept God's command. Now the whole teaching that they had concerning the sixth commandment is they thought, don't take a person's life. And if you don't, then you have kept God's commandment. You haven't broken his law. Now, we basically define murder the same way today. If you look up murder in the dictionary, it'll tell you there the unlawful taking of of another person's life. And so the Pharisees, like many people today, they were satisfied with themselves. They were righteous because they had not committed that external act. And so they had their interpretation of the law, which actually lowered it to a standard that they could keep. And they were satisfied with themselves. And so therefore they thought, God is also satisfied. But remember what Jesus says he says unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees told the truth but they hadn't told the whole truth. Righteousness is not a matter of the external deeds only, it's a matter of the heart. Now Jesus is going to go straight to the heart and This is the theme of these six statements that he makes all the way down to verse number 48. Righteousness is a matter of what is in your heart. Now let's look here. and Let's see what does Jesus say about this in verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now the Pharisees had kept that external command. Their rabbis of old kept telling everybody, and they referred back to them, don't kill, don't do the external act, and so therefore you have satisfied that sixth commandment. But Jesus, who is the author of the law, the one who wrote this law, the one who is the authority of the law, he stood up and he didn't refer to what old rabbi so-and-so said. But Jesus said, but I say unto you. Now this is the correction then of the misinterpretation. What we have here is not a change in the law. This is the proper expounding of God's law. The law is really much more stringent because the law taught against murder in temper. Now, the interesting thing about the Jews' interpretation of the law is that it really didn't have anything to do with God's judgment. They were saying, well, if you kill, you will be in danger of judgment. And what they were referring to was man's judgment. There wasn't any concern that, that this sin of murder offended God's character and offended His holiness. So they told the truth. They said, you're going to be taken to a, a court of law. You're going to get in trouble with the law if you kill someone. And there was no concern for God at all. Their concern is, what can I do to justify myself? As long as I'm sticking to the external commands, as long as I've met my standard, then I'm okay. Is that much different than we find in religion today? I mean, how many people are doing the externals? They have this whole list of things that they've kept and they look at those lists and they say, well, if anybody's going to go to heaven, surely I am. Look at all the list of the good things that I've done or the list of things that I don't do. And they stretch it all out there and that's what their dependence is on. But Jesus says that is not enough. What about your heart? What about the attitude that's behind the act? Now what he's saying here then is that hatred in your heart a thought of malice and evil intent, he says, that is also murder. Now, where does murder start? Well, it starts with anger. A- anger is a sin that develops into murder. When Cain killed his brother Abel, it started with anger. And God said to Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why art thy countenance fallen? And that word wroth means a to blaze up with anger. And so the root of murder was the anger that was in his heart. Now here's the thought then. Have you satisfied God because you kept from the act of murder when in your heart you would do worse if you could? I mean, because you're kept from murdering, because there's this fear of punishment that you have, does that mean it's okay that you can hate a person? He says if you're angry without a cause, without a righteous, holy cause, he says that's the same as murder, and he says you are going to be in danger of judgment. Now, can you imagine what our court system would be like if we stuck to Jesus' principle here? What if someone appeared before the judge, and the judge says, well, we have this case on the docket, and so what is the charge against this person? And the district attorney steps forward, and he says, now, judge, this man is here because he's angry, and he deserves the death penalty. He was out there in the yard, he was arguing with his neighbor, and you could hear the thing all over the neighborhood. He's guilty of murder. Well, you know what the judge would do. The judge would throw that case out. He's not going to hear that, and probably he'll throw the district attorney in jail because he's wasted his time. Why would he do that? Because we think it's the outward act. And so, it's not, Jesus says, it's more. It's a matter of the heart. And these things that we do, or the things that's in our heart, I should say, if if we act those things out, they result... If it comes to its full fruition, it results in murder. So Jesus says, if you are angry, then you are already guilty of the act. Now that's tough, isn't it? How are we able to keep that standard? Who's never angry? I asked you this morning, I mean, if you could raise your hand. I mean, Who in here has never been angry? Who in here, I mean, even this morning, you might have got angry at your husband or your wife and had a fight on the way to church. Happens all the time. And Jesus says, it's murder, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So does that mean, well, you're excused because you have motive, but you lack opportunity? Not according to the interpretation, Jesus' interpretation of the law. He says, you're guilty of murder. And murder is an abomination to God. And let me say this to you another way. If you have anger, and you were called before the tribunal of God, he says... You'll get the death penalty for it. Anger is equal to murder in God's book. And so anger flares up and men are killed because of it. And Jesus says the attitude of your heart, the internal, is more important than the external. Now I want you to pay close attention because now Jesus raised the bar even higher in the second half of verse number 22. He says, And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now Jesus intensifies his gaze, and he looks very sternly at them, and he says you can murder in temper, and he also says you can murder in tongue. In other words, what you say with your mouth can be equal to murder. He says if you say raka to your brother, you're guilty of murder. What does that mean? Well, they're, Some words that we use today that describe people, and those are words of derision. I remember when I was younger that the popular word to call somebody that you didn't like was a rat fink. A rat fink was a disgusting, filthy-looking mouse, and and it originated because the artist who drew it just hated Mickey Mouse, and so he drew an evil counterpart to Mickey Mouse. Well, that kind of got picked up, and so... Whenever you wanted to deride something, you someone you'd call them a ratfink, and I suppose that if two thousand years go by, there probably won't be anybody who'll ever know what a ratfink is. And this is what we have with this term "rocka." It was a slur against someone's character, but the actual meaning of the word has been lost to us. This is a term that was contemporary with the time of Jesus, and what it was was a put-down. So it was a very malicious term. And Jesus says, if you say these kinds of things, if you say that about other people, then you have an evil heart, you have an evil attitude. And if you do it, if you say it, you're guilty of murder. But then he says, if you say fool, you'll be in danger of hell fire. I'm not going to preach on hell today, but let's notice here that Jesus wasn't afraid to preach about it. Hell fire must mean something, and it seems pretty simple to me. There's fire in hell. It's a burning literal fire. But this word fool here, it's, it's kind of interesting because its root is the same word from which we get moron. If you call someone a moron, Jesus says you are in danger of hellfire. Now, I don't know about you, but this whole thing started to make me a little bit nervous. <laughs> if, if you've ever ridden with me in a car, moron is a word that I use quite frequently. I mean, anybody who gets in my way of where I'm going, that person is a moron. And I really haven't been afraid to say that. No, I have maybe some kind of a road rage to some extent. And and thank God it's not resulted in an external act. But Jesus says, these kinds of comments put you in danger of hellfire. Now, I have to tell you a story here. I'm not really proud of this, but some of you might be able to identify with it. About 30 years ago, I, I took a trip touring the northeast with my brother. And we were up in the Seattle area, and my brother wasn't familiar with the roads. And so as we were traveling down the highway, he tried to change lanes, and he cut somebody off. And when he did, this person said, Raka, only the word was just a little bit different and had some hand gestures to go along with it. But uh, that made my, my, my brother mad. And so we, we pulled up to a light, and this guy that he cut off was sitting beside us and so my brother got out of the car and he went over there and he tapped on the guy's window and the guy rolled the window down and without saying a word he just went (laughs) popped him right in the face well we got out of there in a hurry because we we were in danger of judgment and uh, so I I, you know I haven't been back to uh, Seattle since I don't think but here's what Jesus says he says if you do that you're guilty of murder now, let me tell you something else about this. When you decide that you're going to spread a little rumor about someone, when you start gossiping about someone, you start to tear down their reputation, when you carry a little rumor around and you perpetuate that, do you know what you're guilty of? It is murder. That's Jesus' interpretation of Moses' law. And folks, in fact, this is Jesus' law. This so is what he says. Seven things that God hates, and one of them is what? Sowing discord among the brethren. Church gossips are guilty of murder. Now that's tough, isn't it? That is a high standard. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so here it's the intent of the heart. What, what is actually lurking down in your heart? And that is the thing that's most important to God. And so malicious anger, malicious talk, an evil tongue, that's murder in God's eyes. Now do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's teaching us not just about the externals. I mean, if you keep from doing the external act of murder, does that make you okay with God? And he says, no, not according to Jesus. It takes more than that. Not only should you not do the act, but there must not be in your heart an evil intent. Now, that leads me to this third thought on the passage, and that is the correction that matters. There is a correction that matters, and there is an attempted correction that doesn't matter. Now, let's look at the next verses. Start at verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now, how do we correct this thing? I mean, here we have a monumental problem. What Jesus has done, he's raised the bar so high that here we begin to see the impossibility of reaching this standard. Now, the Pharisees just simply lowered the standard to an external act. But what Jesus has done, he's raised it to the internal intent. So how can all of that be fixed? Well, the Pharisees were the religious gurus of their time. They were great about these things of uh, sacrifices and offerings. They had all the sacrifices down. They knew exactly what to bring for whatever sin they might have committed. They knew exactly what kind of offerings that they had to make. And so they had a method of fixing things with God. And their method was sort of like this. Let me buy my way out of it. Let me make some kind of an offering, some kind of a sacrifice... And then I'll make amends for everything I've done. I'll make my amends to God that way. So they would bring their offering to the altar and they would lay it there. And they would think, well, God's satisfied with that. I've taken care of the problem. I've given God what he wants. But Jesus says, you can't do that. You you can't buy your way out of this. It's like the fellow who goes to the priest for confession. And he says, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And the priest says, well, okay, what did you do? And so he lays out the sins. And what's the priest do? He says, well, here's how you can fix this. Say five Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers. Give the church 35 bucks and you're good to go. And and you know what they've done? They've paid their way out of it. Now they feel good now. Uh, they've, They've done what they think is the right thing. So they go out and they sin again. And they come back to confession again. And they fix things again. But do you see what's wrong with it? There's no change of the heart. What they've done is something that's external. Nothing at all has changed on the inside, and that is actually where the real root and core of the sin is. Now, here's what I'm telling you. That kind of stuff does not matter to God. God's not looking at that. He's not going to accept that kind of sacrifice. So what does matter? Let me give you three things rather quickly, then we'll be through. We're not going to rest on this subject, though, because Jesus has five more examples, and all of them lead us to the very same conclusions. So what do you do? What is the correction that matters? Well, you start with this, reconciliation with your brother. If you've sinned against your brother, if you've been angry with them, if there's strife and division, then you don't come and make an offering until you have first reconciled to that brother. If he has a just complaint against you because of something that you've done, And really, in fact, the text indicates that even if it's not a just complaint, not a just complaint, I mean, you still have to try to fix these things. But if you've displayed a bad attitude towards him, the Bible says you go and you be reconciled to him. Now, how do you do that? Well, you, secondly, right the wrong. To be reconciled, you have to fix what you did wrong. Obeying the commandment is not... Just the negative of thou shalt not. But the commandments are given to us to move us into active obedience. You remember what Zacchaeus did when he was saved? He was a tax collector. He'd stolen from the people. He had overcharged them. And so he pocketed the difference. He kept it for himself. And his real repentance was shown when Zacchaeus said these words. He said, if I have wronged any person then I will restore to him fourfold what I took. What was he doing? He he was going about to right the wrong. His reconciliation was not just, I'm sorry. He said, let me fix what I did to you. And then in verse, you'll notice in verse 25, the scripture says when to do this. It says, do it quickly. Go immediately. Don't let differences fester. Whenever you do that, if you wait too long, you're going to, As Jesus puts it here, you'll end up in court before the magistrates, and then it's going to be way harder to fix then. What's the point of that? The point is, sin has consequences. And if you don't head it off quickly, then the repercussions get harder and harder to deal with. And so the longer that you're angry with your brother, the harder that it is to make things right. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Now you see here that when you have these things in your heart, it is impossible for you to worship God. Your gift at the altar, your worship to God is meaningless if your heart is not right. Your fellowship with God is hindered whenever there is sin in your heart. And that's what David said. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart... The Lord will not hear me. When Paul was teaching the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper, he said, don't you come to the table unless your sins have been confessed. Now, that's one of the things we do. We, we make a special effort when we take the Lord's Supper that we all confess our sins so that we don't come before God unworthily. But I really do believe that there are some of you that need to take another step. And that is, you have a problem with someone in the congregation... There's an argument going on. There's some kind of difference that you have. There's some kind of division. And you haven't done your part to resolve the problem that you have with another church member. And Jesus tells us, and the Apostle Paul tells us, you cannot come to his table unless you have the issue resolved. Now that brings me then to this overarching principle that Jesus is teaching by the example. What is the correction that matters? Well, when you get really deep down to it, it's not something that you can actually do. In order to keep the real intent of the sixth commandment, what does there need to be? There must be a renewal of the heart. Now, remember I said in the beginning of the message the the most gruesome crimes that people commit come out of the depths of the depravity of the human heart. the most gruesome crimes we describe as killing people, dismembering them, eating their dead bodies like Jeffrey Dahmer. The most gruesome crimes we think are things like molesting a child and then killing that child like Richard Allen Davis did with Polyclass. And we think those are the most gruesome things that can possibly be done. But what we define as gruesome is what's done to the individual. When in fact what God describes as gruesome is what's done against him. It offends the holiness and the righteousness of the almighty God of this universe. Do you understand this, that this is what Jesus is saying? Your anger, your unrighteous anger against another person, when you fly off the handle, when you speak evil another person, when you do all of those things, what are you doing? You are offending the righteous, holy God of this universe. Do you see how serious it is? This is what Jesus says when he says, Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Take your mind off the external. Jesus' standard is a standard that you cannot reach. So if I ask you today, have you been angry at someone? Have you spoken harshly against someone? Have you used a slur against them? Have you called them a moron? Do you know the question I'm actually asking you? Who have you killed? lately who have you killed lately because jesus says it's murder now that makes it pretty plain for us doesn't it i mean we have to admit right here right now before god we have a wicked heart we can't stop all the evil thoughts we can't control all that we can't restrain all the anger the malice that we have towards other people we cannot control a vile tongue the book of james tells us that doesn't i mean who can tame a person's tongue And so thus here you have Jesus' point. The heart must be changed because you can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. And the illustration here is to drive these people to utter despair, to utter hopelessness. Now if the scribes and the Pharisees cannot be saved by the multitudes of external things that they did, then how are we going to be saved? We don't even live up to their standard, much less the real standard that God's given And so thus you have the problem of the people as they listen to Jesus preach. He drops the bombshell on them when he says your righteousness has to be better. It has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees because that's the very thing they're thinking. How can I be better than a scribe or a Pharisee? And so what did it do? It left the people in despair. Now what is Jesus actually doing? Well, he's doing what the law was intended to do all along. It drives them to the one who kept God's law perfectly. It drives them to the one who died on the cross because that's the only way they're going to be saved. It takes them straight to Jesus. And it declares that righteousness, God's righteousness, God's standard can only be met by faith in Jesus Christ. Now do you understand this? You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. But I say unto you. It's what Jesus says that matters. He's the eternal son of God. Jesus is the way of everlasting life. So it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I think or what you think. What matters is what he says. He said, I and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. He said, I gave my life for you. So Christ's own righteousness, God's righteousness, is what you need. That's what Jesus is saying. That's all that he's trying to say. Keeping the law as God intended, keeping God's standard, will do nothing other than drive you to Jesus Christ, because you cannot change your own heart. The righteousness of Christ is received only by faith in the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. And that's the only way that any person will ever be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. We take this great teaching of Jesus and we see that how he gives a correct interpretation. We've always been thinking that we've kept your law perfectly because we don't murder. We don't do what someone else does. We don't have the same kind of problems that they have. But here we see a very common thing that's common among every member of Berean Baptist Church and every person here today, and that is the sin of anger, a sin of malice, a sin of speaking evil against other people, using the wrong words, showing hatred in our hearts. And that is breaking... The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, it is murder. The intent of the heart is what's most important. And so we take the teachings of Jesus and we understand that these are to bring us to the foot of the cross because there we see the only one who could take our sins for us, the only one who ever kept God's law perfectly. And what we we must have is Christ's own righteousness given to us by faith in him. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that they have these sins in their heart and they can't do anything about them, that they would come to you in repentance and faith, bowing down before you, pleading for the mercy and the grace of God. Speak to some heart today, Lord, draw us to you. That's the real intent of your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.